Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? Just business as usual. You are definitely sounding much, much more healthy than you were last week. Are you fully shipshape or are you just doing a good job of pretending that you are? Uh, both, both can be true, I think. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, you're listening to episode 199. That's right. Next week is our big 200th episode. Can you believe we made it this far, Dan? Yeah, there, there have been some touch and go moments, but I, yeah, I, yeah. Abso- I absolutely believe that we've made it this far, but that's because I have faith in us, Leslie. Oh, Dan, I have faith in us too. I just don't have total faith in the media landscape anymore. <laughs> Entirely reasonable, especially since I hear that BuzzFeed is about to start employing AI. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, we're going to pour one out for a, a lot of um, our friends at other outlets who have gone through it this month. Lots of layoffs, obviously, in, in the media landscape right now. And, yeah, just, just pouring one out for, for our friends that have been caught up in all of that. I've, I've been through it before in my career, and it is pretty shitty. But yes, 200 is coming next week. Huzzah. Huzzah. Well, and if all goes according to plan, at least right now, we're going to have a very special guest for a very long interview. That should be uh, illuminating, I hope. I hope it will be illuminating, but they're all special guests, Leslie. That's true. That is very true. Well, it'll be a little something different. I'll tease with that. So, well, enough about teasers. What do you say we dive right in with headlines? Bring it on. Number one. Up first, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has renewed her overall deal and put an adaptation of the novel Sign Here in development at Amazon, where she has multiple other projects in the works. But like, seriously, where are they, Phoebe? Yeah, remember when she was going to do Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Donald Glover? And that didn't happen. That, w- that would have been cool. That was supposed to be on the air last year. It was. And, and, and that was Maya Erskine most recently, who was going to do it with him, right? And Correct. Have we talked about, has, has the world talked about that for a while? Is that a thing that's actually an active development or is it just a thing that's in passive development? I haven't heard that it's not. Okay. So, yeah. Well, fair enough. Bring it on. Uh, I would like, I would like more Phoebe Waller-Bridge television. Not that I mind seeing her pop up at award shows uh, uh, with the writer and director of Banshees of Inisherin. Yes. Elsewhere, The Recruit has been renewed for a second season at Netflix, sending congrats to friend of the five, Alexi Hawley, on the pickup. He will continue to have three shows on the air with The Recruit joining ABC's The Rookie and its spinoff. We need to talk about the terminology friend of the five. 
some people are just former guests. And I'm not saying that about Alexi, incidentally. Alexi can totally be a friend of the five. He was very- a friend of the five for me. Uh, sure. I'm, and I'm not saying that he isn't. I'm just saying is every former guest a friend of the five? Some of them could be kind of antagonistic to us in private. So I well, don't know. We'll get into that later. But speaking of friends of the five, and these people really are, because they've been on multiple times, and I even went to college with one of them, uh, congrats to the Cobra Kai creators on earning a sixth, but also final- renewal for their Karate Kid revival. So I guess it's not a sixth renewal. It's probably a fifth renewal for a sixth season. Anyway, yeah, math six, is sixth difficult. Sixth and final season, yeah. Sixth and final season for Cobra Kai, which is honestly a pretty good run if you consider how silly that show sounded when it first premiered. The fact that it is, and that it premiered on a platform that doesn't do scripted television anymore. YouTube <laughs> Red, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of, well, yes, that doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, that it's kind of remarkable they got to six seasons. So, yay. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I think we've talked about this a couple times. I really miss starting my year watching Cobra Kai and having the guys on the show because we have we did that twice, and then Netflix keeps moving the premiere date around. So maybe <sighs> we'll get them again. I don't know. We'll I see. don't know. They absolutely could have been on our – we could have totally had a New Year's Eve podcast if only Netflix hadn't moved up the premiere date and screwed everything up. <sighs> Sigh. Sigh. And wrapping up the renewal front, CBS has given an early season five pickup to Chuck Lorre comedy Bob Hart's Abishola. That's nice. That's very nice. Good for Chuck Lorre. He quietly renewed his big overall deal at Warner Brothers, I think, last year or the year before. But, uh, yeah, he'll continue to have at least two shows on CBS, considering Young Sheldon's already been picked up. Good for him. I guess he is also a friend of the five. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when we, we recorded in person at his office and it was like we had to use like this this giant empty TV box as like a desk and we were like recording some like makeshift empty office because they had just kind of remodeled and moved and everything was crazy. That was fun. I do indeed. Yeah, and then we saw a picture of the of the painting of uh, Maya Bialik and Kaylee Cuoco from Big Bang Theory. That was uh, pretty fun. I have a picture of that of us on uh, in my electric picture frame standing in front of that pic. Hold it up to the microphone so that our uh, listeners can hear it. <laughs> No? Anyway, going back to shows that are coming to an end, DC dramas Titans and Doom Patrol will both end with their current fourth season on HBO Max. As sources say, neither show fits in with what DC executives want to do. Yeah, and James Gunn actually tweeted after the news came out and said that this was a decision that was made that, that predated the new regime over at DC. But you know, that that's all well and good. But, you know, from everything that, that I've heard, you know, these shows, the, the producers obviously saw the writing on the wall of what was going on, not just at DC, but at HBO Max and decided to write these current seasons with an ending just in case. And, well, they were smart to do that. Not shocking. At this point, nothing ending on HBO Max is shocking. But HBO Max is not the only place where things are ending, Leslie. Yeah, in other cancellation news, Apple has axed the Mosquito Coast after two seasons, and Peacock has canceled One of Us is Lying and Julie Plex Vampire Academy after a single season. So, Come on, friend of the five, Julie Plex. Yes, whiz. friend of the five, Julie Plex, yes. <laughs> I definitely think that once people have been on the podcast multiple times, they're definitely friends of the five. Also, if people have uh, co-hosted the podcast when you had COVID, they're also definitely friends of the five. So I think it's just important to have rules. I'm here yes. for rules. Yes, but also Julie Pleck was, I think, one of our better interviews because she was so just ungar unfiltered, you know? And, and when guests come on the show and can actually speak freely like she did way back when, gotta love that. 
Absolutely. And I'm still not 100% sure which show one of us is lying is, even though I think I watched most of the first season. But I I, I watched, I think, two episodes and then I wanted to, to wash my eyes out with lava. With lava. That is not an efficient way to wash your eyes out, Leslie. Well, no, I couldn't. I didn't want to. I couldn't unsee what I had already seen, you know. You never can. You never yeah. can. That's true. That's true. Yeah, well, that's really the end of headlines. But before we we move on, some news that broke this morning. HBO has announced that Succession Season 4 is officially returning March 26th. And Dan, I don't know if you've watched the trailer yet, but it's got me pumped. I am very excited for more of the dysfunctional Roy family in my life. I am very excited, but I am also bracing for the complete and total chaos that will be the Emmy drama series race this year. Um, like just on the HBO side alone, they're going to have to deal with how they're going to promote Succession, House of the Dragon and uh, Last of Us. And, you know, one can get into a debate as to which of those are and are not worthy of Emmy consideration. Also, we haven't seen season four of Succession. It could totally, you know, go into the tank. Who knows? Anything could happen. Yeah, it could, and it could compete as a comedy. It right? will not compete as a comedy. <laughs> On the other hand, there is the question of what HBO either is going to choose to do or is going to be forced to do with season two of White Lotus, because if you've been paying attention, uh, it was treated as a limited series by the Golden Globes, but it has been treated as separately a comedy series and a drama series by several of the voting guilds that have been award giving awards in the past few months. So... It's one of those things where I think the assumption has to be that HBO's first instinct is going to be to try to get it in as an anthology or limited series again. This, despite the fact that with uh, the Jennifer Coolidge character, it has a recurring character across both of them, which ought to make it completely ineligible. But even then, they'll have to decide if they want to treat it as a comedy or a drama. Probably it has its best chance if it doesn't have to go head to head with succession, because I assume that there is a lot of overlapping affection for those shows. So it really should be treated as a comedy, neither here nor there. But I'm still looking at that drama category and you've got all of those HBO shows. And that's just before you open the door to so many other things like, for heaven's sakes, the last season of Better Call Saul. Uh, you know, there was a there was a season of The Crown and and how quickly we forget that the last season time there was a season of The Crown, it won absolutely every single available Emmy in the drama category. So whether or not people thought the most recent season of The Crown was as good as previous seasons, and I, for the most part, did not, it is still going to be a serious contender. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff in that field. Uh, but on the other hand, let's just talk about how we're looking forward to succession because we are. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, at this point, speaking of The Last of Us, I'd really be surprised if that show didn't get renewed before uh, episode three aired. And here we are recording Thursday at noon. But uh, yeah, I think it, it's not a question of if that show gets renewed. I think it's a question of when that show gets. Oh, renewed. absolutely. And and it's it just they, they have not been treating that show as a limited series up until this point. So if it is going to suddenly pretend that it is for Emmy purposes, that would be a very, very peculiar thing to suddenly decide that it was going to be. I don't think it will. I expect it's just a drama. And then you're going to have to get into the are Emmy voters prepared to recognize a zombie show or a mushroom zombie show, you know, in main series categories. And we'll have to see about that. But as yeah, you mentioned, I mean, episode three. Also, spoiler alert, man, that Anna Torv scene. Oof, bleh, creepy to the max, man. Lots Oof, of lots of creepy stuff me. in that show. But the the upcoming third episode, which premieres this weekend, is easily the best of the first season. And I look forward to people's reactions to it. Up next. 
Number two. Lots going on in the world of animation this week, Dan. We're going to lead off with some positive news. This just in, Fox has renewed The Simpsons, Family Guy, and Bob's Burgers for two additional seasons apiece, taking the renewals for all three through the 2024-25 broadcast season. As our uh, fantastic colleague Rick Porter pointed out on Twitter, this means the show will effectively be the same age that Homer has been on the show when by the time that those seasons air. Yes, so, the, yeah, like the, close to like what is it, season thirty six of of The Simpsons? I we're mean, we're higher than that TV's, at this point. It is, yeah, still TV's longest running scripted show. But wow, it is it is absolutely remarkable. And also, it needs to be pointed out this season of The Simpsons has been really good. Uh, <laughs> I know that I know that that does not fit with the conventional narrative of the show not having been good since season thirteen, which is of course ridiculous. As Anyone who watches the show knows. Uh, but yes, this season has actually been a really good season of The Simpsons in general. There have been some not-so-great episodes, but that's how it goes. Um, I have to admit that I am way backed up on Bob's Burgers, which is entirely on me because I love Bob's Burgers, and I need to simply make that into my lunchtime show for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I've stopped watching Family Guy and feel no particular regrets about it. I, I think I watched somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 seasons of it. So I'm not going to feel any real regret. I just haven't laughed at it for a while. And there are other things on TV. Yeah, you may have mentioned that a couple of times. But the real big news this week is what's going on with the co-creator of Adult Swim's Rick and Morty, Justin Roiland, has been fired by Adult Swim from the show he co-created. And his voice roles will be recast. Dan Harmon will continue on as uh, showrunner of that series, which continues to air on Adult Swim. I think they've, they're like maybe not even halfway through their last 70 episode order. Uh, Rick and Morty, of course, is a massive hit for Warner Brothers Discovery. So this was a really, really big decision by the company to terminate Justin Roiland. And then, of course, a day later, Disney did the same thing, fired Justin Roiland, who had an overall deal with 20th Century Fox Animation, sorry, 20th Animation. He was an executive producer of both Hulu's Solar Opposites and its recently launched co animated comedy Koala Man. Any voice roles that he's got in either or both will also be recast. Of course, he's still going to be credited as an executive producer on all of the shows because he was an executive producer and he will probably still continue to be paid for at least Rick and Morty, which he co-created. So, but yeah, the, the larger issue here is obviously this all comes after Royland pleaded not guilty to domestic violence charges stemming from a 2020 incident in Orange County, California. Through his attorney, Royland has maintained his innocence, but... Yeah, Dan, this is a really, really big thing, big deal for one of the most successful minds in animation, which, as we've said on this podcast, is an extremely lucrative business to be let go. Yeah, there, there is no question that Rick and Morty is a, a cash cow for Adult Swim and that, <laughs> that it is a show with one of the most devoted and passionate fan bases on television, and that ought to, if nothing else, give some indication that whatever decision Adult Swim made in this instance was not one that they would have taken lightly. And probably that's all that <laughs> that, can, that can be said on the subject. I mean, there's, you know, there, there are the allegations against him, and then there are all variety of other allegations that are floating around on social media regarding just other, quote-unquote, behaviors uh, that 
are unsettling in their own respect, but not necessarily illegal. Um, yeah, this is this is an open an open criminal case, and therefore there's only so much we can actually say about it. But I'll say again, there is no way that any of these companies that he was associated with would have taken the decision lightly to sever ties with him. Um, yeah, Roylan was charged with one felony count of domestic battery with corporal injury and one felony count of false imprisonment by menace, violence, fraud, and or deceit after a January 2020 incident involving an unnamed woman that he was dating. The case has moved slowly through the court system since then. NBC News was the first to report publicly on the case in mid-January when Roylan was in court for a pretrial hearing. He's scheduled to return for another hearing on April 27th. We'll continue to, to monitor this story as it affects these content, you know, the, the various programs of which he was attached. But yeah, not, uh, big, big news, big changes for 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 Rick and Morty. So we'll see what happens and we'll see if there's any opportunities for up and coming people in animation to really get get into Rick and Morty and some of these other roles. So, yeah, pretty lucrative if you can get that job. To be sure, but yes, it is. It is unpleasant news and uh, and worrisome news, and uh, yeah, that's <laughs> not much else to say there, Dan. So not much else to say. So up third, number three, a big change is coming to ABC's Grey's Anatomy and the spinoff Station Nineteen. Uh, big change featuring a friend of the five, as it were. That's right. Showrunner Krista Vernoff, who was personally recruited by Shonda Rhimes to run the medical uh, drama after Shonda departed for Netflix. She's going to leave both shows at the end of their current seasons. ABC, of course, is yet to renew either. Those sources say both are considered a slam dunk to return. What's interesting here is, you know, this season of Grey's Anatomy, Ellen Pompeo has dramatically reduced her role. She is going to appear in only a total of eight episodes with her. I, I hear the last episode that she will film this season will be this, the season finale. So we know that that character is off to Boston. So I'm going to hold my breath until ABC announces the Boston set version of Grey's Anatomy because I have a hunch, just a hunch. I don't have any reporting on this, that that's coming soon. But what's interesting, too, is, you know, here that we've got Ellen Pompeo, who is taking a step back from this multi-billion dollar franchise that she is the face of to focus on something that is completely different. She's go uh, going to star in and executive produce an untitled limited series for Hulu. And at the same time, sources say Vernoff wants to focus on her own development after spending years. And this is, of course, her second stint within Shondaland. She took over Station 19 after uh, that show's creator, Stacey McKees, took a step backward. And she, Vernoff is currently developing a show called First Lie Win with Octavia Spencer for Hulu. And that is, of course, produced through her overall deal with Grace and Station 19 producers ABC Signature, where she continues to have an overall deal. But guess what? She's outside of Shondaland as soon as this both seasons end. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear from her. She, of course, said in, in a statement that uh, this isn't a permanent goodbye and that she would could imagine herself coming back to that show in seven years, which is basically what happened when Shonda plucked her out of uh, Shameless to come back to to Grey's. So, yeah, and not surprising, though, to see some similarities between what Ellen's doing and what Chris is doing. So maybe they're, one took inspiration from the other or vice versa. It seems fairly reasonable. If you're Ellen Pompeo, on one hand, you've earned a ridiculous amount of money from this show, and that's great. But on the other hand, you've been attached to this show 
for decades now, basically for the entirety of your of your practical career. And so why why would you not want to <laughs> to do a couple other things really just for fun? Because obviously she's getting things out of Grey's Anatomy and I'm not just talking about money. She's she's getting things that she's finding fulfilling about the show. Yeah, she directed for the yeah. first time a few years ago. Yeah. But still, it is it is not unreasonable for someone whose entire career has been a show to want to do something else just for fun. Uh, with Krista, as you said, and as she said, she's kind of had her different waves with the show, and she's done her outside development also. And, and, and she had Rebel, of course, which was a, sadly a one and done at ABC, and I think exactly. that really upset her a little bit too. Oh, I'm sure that I'm sure that burnt. I'm you know it, it would be a human instinct for that to have burnt, and for her to feel like she wanted to get a few more of the other development itches out of her system and so yeah nope she uh she she's another one of those people who who when she was on the podcast was was entirely frank and candid about just about everything uh which is always the best way to be <laughs> that's right she joined us in episode 80 uh from july 31st 2020 so right in, in the throes of lockdown she was uh, one of our our uh great lockdown guests and yeah, that was a good interview, and she continues to be a good interview, and hopefully we'll we'll hear from more from her about the decision and and see what else comes from her deal with ABC. But in the meantime, she leaves behind a great stable of of talented writers and producers that she's worked with for a long time. So look to see two, at least two of those promoted to to take over both Grays and Station Nineteen. They're going to promote from within because. As Krista has proved, it really does help if you've been there for a long time and you know the bones of that show, let alone how that show functions behind the scenes. So more as it becomes official. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. We are joined this week by the three creators of Apple's Shrinking Bill Lawrence is the co-creator of the Emmy-winning Ted Lasso, just show you may have heard of, as well as series including Spin City, Scrubs, and Cougar Town. Emmy winner Brett Goldstein is a writer and producer on Ted Lasso and, in case we didn't mention it, a two-time Emmy winner for his performance as Roy Kent. And Jason Siegel is the star of Freaks and Geeks, How I Met Your Mother, and the creator star of AMC's Dispatches from Elsewhere. Welcome to the podcast, Jason, and welcome back to the show, Bill and Brett. You got Thanks it. For having us. How's it going? Big fun. It's good. It's good. So let's start with the, you know, the obligatory, how did this group come together question? So first off, where did the idea for shrinking come from and who came up with the idea of making this a show about a therapist who is more messed up than his patients? Uh, I'm going to start and then hand over to Brett. Brett and I knew each other before Ted Lasso. We had worked together. I thought he was a very funny comic and writer and actor, and I put him on a short list of people. The later years of my career is just finding young people that I can exploit and hitch my wagon to and then take credit for their work. And uh, uh, London, I'm going to still hype up London. Cool city, very popular. Check it out if you haven't. But it is also a place that there's a pub on every corner for a reason. And uh, even though I don't remember it, I'm guaranteeing you when we met at a pub to hang out, it was probably raining and cold. Yeah, I'd say so. I think you never saw sun in your time. In it was awful. And the uh, um, uh, we were trying to think of something to do together because I enjoy working with him so much. He's so talented. And uh, I'll end my part of the story here. For real, I had been I was like trying to demystify different professions. I had noticed that 
therapists, and I know a bunch of my real life, always are there for expository stuff about the main character. Wayne Brocco was great, but it's like, hey, meet Tony Soprano. We even did it in um, uh, Spin City. Mark Lynn Baker Baker played Mike Fox's therapist so we could get to know him better. And years ago, I pitched a show because the opening scene is real for my life. Happened to my neighbor. He was not a therapist. He was an orthopedic surgeon. He has rebounded and uh, uh, is remarried and and, uh, happily ever after story, thank goodness. Uh, But I remember pitching that opening scene back in Peter Roth days and saying it was a comedy and just meeting blank faces. (laughs) And the kind of zeitgeist of what you can write about and call a comedy has changed. And so I told Brett I had always been noodling about that because coincidentally, I I had a, a treatment for a show that was about a grieving therapist that was dark, really dark, <laughs> much darker, uh, but similar, similar, but in a in a <laughs> probably more dramatic space. And then the more we talked about it, we we're like, actually, put these put this together. This is the the correct time for this show. I will say that Brett approached it from the mindset of an artist. And whether or not those things combined and made a better product, and I approached it from uh, having to do half as much work. <laughs> <laughs> Rock happens. <laughs> and then we got together like, how can I make half as much work one third as much work? <laughs> and we wanted Jason. We wanted Jason. Jason was like. <laughs> The only person we could right. do this with. And Bill was like a third guy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> By the way, if you guys don't think there was a point that I was at, like with us three going, is there anybody else? <laughs> so we only have to write like six scenes each. And then there was Neil. <laughs> <laughs> um but hey, by the way, not only to connect you two, I had known Jason a little just through Hollywood in the world and loved him as a performer and a guy. And uh, but the connective tissue was in my heart, I believe, the Muppets. Yes. Oh. I love the Muppets. I don't know if you've heard this. And uh, and I think I have a poster of the Muppets on my wall, which is the Muppets. This, the Muppets. And I think it's this a perfect the film. And, you think uh, it's a perfect film? Yeah. You've never you said that with a question mark. Because you've never said anything like that about any of my work. You should watch the Muppets. You should though. say the Muppets. That's great. <laughs> if you want to perfect. see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and we were like, J- Jason's the right person for this because he has this quality that that is so likable and innately empathetic and sympathetic and and given what our opening scene is and, and the starting point of this story, it's like who who can play this in a way that you're going to love them and you can allow that character to to make mistakes and do potentially bad things or stupid things and still root for them. And so we wanted Jason. We did a a zoom with him where he listened to us pitch the show and he didn't say much and i thought oh that was a disaster <laughs> and we and we left and then the next day he called it and said i'd love to do it and he he made it better and the only thing i would add because i want you to do that quote about what that person said because you've never said it oh, but yeah. uh, i one of the things i've always watched his work and enjoyed him as a fanboy both you you know that i'm a tv nerd fanboy we were arguing about paul goldman before you guys got on here and uh um um, uh, the one thing I said that is even in my favorite Jason Siegel comedies, he always has this undercurrent of sadness, you know, that I thought would really work well here. I seem to have curried some good favor by being people's best friend for like 20 years in projects, you know, it's, 
on how I met your mother for so long. And, and I've been Paul Rudd's best friend like eight times. <laughs> uh, and that, in real life. And in real life. Uh, yeah, but I think you can push these characters. One of the one of the superpowers of that is that you can push characters into really uh, unlikable territory. And it seems to land on people thinking, oh, what a sweet guy. And it translates to life, too. Like, I can, someone can say, like, can I hold your baby? And I'll say, I hate babies. And I mean it. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, it's so cute. Look at him do his jokes. So, yeah, we use that superpower for evil in this. Yeah. Oh, that was James Ponsel. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, can we say that or not? Too dark. Yeah, it's too dark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, By the way, this is my new thing. I'm checking with people if I'm allowed to say things because I got my ceremonial 100th uh, text from Brett that said, "Don't say that anymore to that anybody." Ever. One of those things I'd say, "Don't tell." <laughs> <laughs> right now. I'm trying my best. Yeah. You're doing so great. I'm doing yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, look, we we shined over. Jason's a, not a lot of people know this, and it's always important for me to point out. He's a ridiculously, if he wasn't acting, he would still be one of the most successful writers out there. He's nice. written a ton of features, uh, you know, and for us to go, uh, one of the things that Jason Sudeikis brought to us is the experience of having the lead of a show not only know their own voice and not only help craft their own voice, but be kind of an answer key to whether or not things are going to work even before you do them. In this crowded landscape, it's such a cheat, you know, that we are both kind of super excited to have him as a creative partner. Here's why I felt really lucky and excited, right? I think that the three of us in the Venn diagram of our tastes, there's this sweet spot where you can, we, we think it's, we think it's uh, comedy is like this crazy tool to explore real issues. Heavy on heavy, exploring heavy through drama is just a bummer. But you can you can you can lower the defenses on a heavy issue through comedy. Get people laughing, get people a little loose, and then really hit them with emotion. And to me, it's like the most effective version of art. Um, it's so what I try to do, even as a kid, before I really understood what heavy issues were. Like the best I could do was a breakup. Like make it funny and then cry the whole time. It's like this magical combination. Yeah, I mean, you're taking me back to Freaks and Geeks, where you know you've very right. much had that. Yeah, yeah. Freaks and Geeks. Can we? By the way, the best thing that happened to me is I don't know how it happened, but uh, just generally through the haziness, and I'm not denying it. Someone thought that I was involved in the creation of Freaks and Geeks. Take it, oh my I, dude. I let it slide. I didn't. I, I spoke in a way that it, if anybody played back the tape, it's, I wasn't going to lie. No, no, no. You know what I mean? Because I was just like, I tried to pretend I was moving without repeating. Yeah, I tried to pretend I was moving on. Yeah, you're like, yeah, those were like different times. times. Those were busy yeah. Phillips and Jason Siegel, Freaks and Geeks, and that ethos. And when you worked on that, I was like, busy's great. So the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for you. So anyways, when I wrote Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> I want to go back quickly to the the pitch that you had originally, Brett, and you keep emphasizing how dark it was. Give us a give us some indication of how dark that pitch was. It was it, I mean, it was uh, it was it had murder in it. it had a, had had it was the the wife in mine had been uh murdered by one of, I mean, do we have a guess? Say it? Yeah. I mean, it had been murdered by a patient. 
uh, to punish the touch. So it was that was like a it was a darker. Way. It had. A, I remember talking about it. it. Had a sixth sense vibe of the reveal of you know the uh, uh, when he's when he was his patient. I mean, I mean it, Brett's character was obviously a ghost in his version. <laughs> I just met. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, I needed at this point for me from both these two. You know, I don't want to say that. Uh, I think I have a specific voice and to have people that were legitimate partners and not anybody I'm supervising, they could do their own shows, kind of pushed me a little out of my comfort zone of hopefully of mm. having things sound like my things sound in a way that, you know, I love taking credit for both of your stuff. It makes me happy. I'm curious though, because currently right now, the listeners cannot see this, but you guys are sitting on a, on a very, very, very small uh, hotel couch all together. And, and you guys are, are three tall men. And so it's very, very cramped. How frequently were you guys actually in the same room as you guys were writing and doing production on this? The, uh, just because I want to make it cause, cause Brett had the toughest Jason and I just by proximity and me, you know, running the show and Jason being in the writer's room were around each other all the time during production. Brett and I and Jason were able to always be around each other in writing the pilot, but you guys are astute enough and you know how um, calendars work that you can certainly see that Brett was was writing, writing, he was in London writing and uh, acting in Ted Lasso. Uh, And so the greatest thing in the world for, it would be disingenuous if we didn't highlight all the writing staff because there's so many high-level so show good. creators on the show, Annie and Rechna and Ashley Nicole Black. And, but Neil Goldman is running the show, so he was kind of the, the other person. But Brett became the guy that not only would we at night Zoom and pitch outlines to him, but we would often say, hey, are you shooting scenes on Ted Lasso Friday or Monday? And if the answer is no... Could we have a full script? Because we're behind by Tuesday. <laughs> so we got to be together a lot at the start. And now we're getting to be together a lot because we're working together now with our fingers crossed that uh, there'll be a second season. So we're around each other a lot in L.A. That's where. So, but now in the middle, he he had to go to other shit. And also to clarify, we're taller than Brett. Yeah. Brett, by the way, than me. I felt I feel very small. And Brett, the whole cast of drinking is. Rats, not as a uh, uh, yeah tallest cast in Hollywood. When you see Jessica Williams, and he, I think legit six one without my wife looks short. My wife's five ten. Yeah, in heels she's my height. Yeah. The, uh, uh, Unless but, uh, I'm in heels, in which case, just remember, guys, <laughs> Brett Goldstein, not as mean as he wants you to think, not as tall as he wants you to think. Well, you know, Brett, I remember the last time you were on the show, you mentioned you know you told the story about how you were a writer on Ted Lasso before you wound up taking the role of, of Roy Kent uh, on this one. Was there any draw for you to, did you want to be on camera or, or Jason, did it work the same way where you kind of were attached as a co-creator or was, was it always envisioned for you to star in this? It came down to me or Harrison Ford for the part of Paul. And, uh, <laughs> and I, you know what? And Harrison said, you take it, man. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I think you're the right guy for this. Truthfully, I, I, it never occurred to me on this show. I'd been, I'd always written it. I'd always just been on it as a writer. And you've got Jason Segel and you've got Harrison Ford and you've got Jessica Williams. Like, you don't, th- there's no part in it where I'm like, oh, I should be playing that part. It's I'm like, dying to get him on the show. Yeah, right, a good follow-up question as if it's come up in the writer's room would be, hey, Brett, do you have any interest in, in doing something if there's a second season on the show? 
I mean, I'm not telling you guys what to ask, but I'd ask you. <laughs> hey, Brett, do you yeah. have any interest in doing something if it comes up in season two of the show? At which time? <laughs> Shrinking, I believe, is what. No, he's just cagey in the writers' room. No, I love it. Of course, I love it. We oh. these heavy, heavy hairs. By being in the show, it will suddenly be a show about a man who has issues with being short. But I don't want that to be the big season arc if we do a season two of a man trying to get over his height deficiency. You're not what short. about what about a shrinking Ted Lasso crossover? Obviously, both are Warner Brothers, so and, and, yeah, and yeah, Apple. Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, Brett as Ray Kent. No, Ted Lasso is its own um, um, universe, beautiful universe, you know, and uh, uh, and it, it is presided over by. Uh, another there's by the, another Jason, you know, and uh, it's makes me laugh. I just randomly, it, of course, the way that my world would work out is that uh, uh, everybody I work with has the initials JS, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm constantly have different Jasons, uh, uh, you know, kind of making sure which ones on my timeline. But now the Lasso verse is very um, kind of claustrophobic and protected in a good way. Um, since since Brett has been talking so much about the height thing, I, I have to say I've watched nine episodes of this now, and at the end of the ninth episode, the characters are all the same size as they were in the pilot. Um, this is you, how did you come up with the title, and and why did you decide Shrinking was the right title and not, say, as misleading as hypothetically Cougar Town? Can I, uh, <laughs> can I answer? Firstly, listen, we, we would love to do more seasons of this. There is a, a overriding arc of the show that they do get smaller, but we didn't want to blow it yeah. in season Because you haven't seen the finale either. Yeah. A, by the way, this is true. A comedic friend of mine, uh, actor, and I have asked permission, so I can't say it. He said that, you know, he's shrinking. And I said, is about therapists. And he said to someone else that it was about a team of therapists that they wear, like, superhero suits and they shrink down to very tiny and they ride around in their patient's ears and tell them what to yeah. do you know in a moment-to-moment -moment basis and this is the problem every time i go stop doing that because we have to admit it's a very good show. <laughs> yeah it was harrison's question to me on day one how small do we get today? <laughs> um, i'm not good at titling things you kind I, of like I, tell you, tell you a secret yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe you have to take it i don't think i've ever told you this I thought shrinking was a placeholder and one day we would fix it. And then I, know I saw story. billboards and I was like, oh, we forgot to, to put a proper title. I never thought it was a placeholder. And I have a storied history of being awesome at titling things. <laughs> 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 I remember to give it a title. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't take offense when you say it in a British accent. You say we must remember to give it a title, which, yeah. if said in his accent, would be a really mean thing to say. Yeah. All right. It's not easy. My other show's called Winning Time, and it sounds like a foreign translation. <laughs> <laughs> it's Winning Time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, one of the show's biggest hooks is going to be Harrison Ford doing comedy. And Bill, I know you've, you've said before that he was your neighbor and that gave you a point of entry. But um, how well did you know the Fords next door and what was your pitch to get him to do the show? Uh, all right. Look, the real thing, I don't, if, he, if Harrison was in the fourth box on this Zoom, 
I would say it is 50, 50 at best that he knows I'm his neighbor. <laughs> you guys have known me for years. It's just stick I'm putting out there. I am his neighbor. You know what I mean? But, uh, you know, it's like, well, 10 years is a big long. It's Harrison again. He wants to borrow some fruit. And never come on. I don't, I don't think he knows. Uh, he knows now, I think, because he walked me home from his house once. But uh, the uh, the truth of the matter is, were I to give anything of substance to this, I came to an epiphany very late in my career, which is um, that I've heard the word no so often that it doesn't hurt me emotionally as much as it used to. You know what I mean? And I wish I had known that younger because we go through this thing of, and you don't just get, just so people out there know, when you ask an actor or writer or somebody else, if they want to do something, you don't just get, oh no, sometimes you get like, are you fucking kidding me? No way. And you're like, oh my God. You know what I mean? And I just got to the point that that doesn't hit me the same way anymore. So the real truth of that story is that I was able, these guys, we were all talking and we said, who's the prototype, you know, an older blue collar shrink who's kind of, you know, considering his legacy and where he moves to next, we said Harrison Ford. And I'm like, I can get to him and ask him. And I was working in a show in Miami and my cell phone rang and this is the start of it. And I'll let these guys take it to my cell phone rang and they had given Harrison my number. And I thought it was interesting that he would call me to say no personally. I thought it's just going to be another one of those. No. And uh, he literally said, uh, hey, I really like this script in this world. I'm trying to do things that are fun. I haven't done a comedy before. I'm only in like three or four scenes in the pilot. I'm in more after that. And I'm so not prepared. I'm like, you're in whatever you want to be after that. And uh, uh, so he said, what's the next step? I, I said, are you in, where are you? So I'm in London. And I said, uh, you're going to go out for uh, a drink in two nights with a guy I know in London. And that's where you step in go. Yeah. So then I suddenly get a phone call out of the blue from Indiana Jones. And, uh, and I, I missed the call. Oh, first of all, I have a voicemail, which I've kept, which is, hey, it's Harrison Ford. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and I, I went and, long story short, I went to his apartment and thought we're going to be having a difficult conversation about this and see if he's interested or whatever. And it was the easiest. It was it was almost comical, like, oh, yeah, this is what I imagined Hollywood would be like. You just turn wow. up and there's Harrison Ford and he says, yeah, I want to do your job. And you're like, what? It was like within seconds he'd said he wanted to do it. And, the, and look, he's a real – there's a thing in the Mike Nichols biography where, where Mike Nichols says about Harrison Ford and Working Girl. That's a great book, by the way. Great uh, book. It's amazing. But he says about Harrison Ford that he was amazing because he wasn't like a diva or anything. And what he said to Mike Nichols is, how do I serve the story best? Just tell me how to do that. And certainly my experience – from t- even the first time I met him, he wanted to talk about all the things that he related to with the character. He wanted to talk about how he fit into the world. He wanted to talk about everyone else involved. And he approached it like an actor, not like a star. You know what I mean? He was like, would he wear this sort of outfit? I was thinking he'd be like this. He was just, it was sort of so surreal. And it continues to be. I, it I was, I'm going to segue to this part because it's also true. So we had that great meeting. And then Harrison called me. It's 100% true. And he goes, Brett's such a great guy. I'm so psyched to work with you two. Is he going to be flying back to you know US? I'm like, no, you'll never see him again. <laughs> 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 I'm like, he's going to stay there and work on a different show, man. 
And uh, Harrison's like, all right, so who's the other? Who's this? I said, it's okay. I said, it's Joe. Yeah, sure, sure. I said, uh, Jason, uh, I go, Jason Siegel. And there's a pause. He goes, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you some of his movies. And to his credit, Harrison, you know, watched a bunch of stuff, uh, end of the tour, um, Sarah Martin, bit, and then he reached out to Jason via, and he said, uh, he said, uh, yeah, the kid's got a great penis. <laughs> Full final nudity of Sarah Marshall. By the way, he's got that, he's got that text on his wall. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what he said to me too, which was, uh, in line with what Brett said, he was a carpenter, you know, and he said to me at one point, uh, his approach is that people have hired him to help build a house. And when the project is done, he just wants the people who hired him to be happy with the house. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you guys, we can't pump him up enough. He's such a gamer at this stage of my life and career to have a dude that's working so hard, so inspiring. You know, even when you ask, yeah, you're doing a Marvel movie. Yeah, I've never done anything like that before. It's going to be so fun. You know, uh, the only real handicap of it was not from his side. We all had to get over our um, um, inability to talk to him like a partner because he's so iconic for us. The best version of it, uh, this is a story I haven't told. I just remember this. Uh, so he tricked me on day one. He might get mad at me. Uh, he tricked me on day one, day one of shooting. I just, okay, you know the story, don't you? On day one of shooting, I showed up and uh, 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 he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't even in the scene. We were, we were working on the scene. His, his scene was later, and he poked his head in, and he had. Uh, uh, he loves Panama hats. He had a great hat on. And he goes, "Hey, man, you like my hat?" And when Harrison Ford says, "Do you like my hat?" What are you going to do? No, you know. I'm like, "Yeah, man, it's amazing." And he goes, "Good. I'm wearing it in every scene." <laughs> and, then he, and, then, and then he walked out, and it was literally Jason me. Randall, uh, Annie, Neil Goldman did essentially rock, paper, scissors. No, we didn't. No, we did not do rock, paper, scissors. I said it. We did not. This is what essentially rock, paper, scissors looks like. So then Bill's like, Jason, come here. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, what's up? And he calls me and Randall over. And he's like, I need you to go in there. You're an executive producer on this. That carries some responsibility. Need to go in there and tell Harrison he can't wear the hat. <laughs> and by the way, this is where it came out. For those of you who've seen episodes of the show, the compromise is maybe his character, and Harrison pointed out, maybe his character would like wearing hats outside. Yeah. Uh, and this is who he is as a guy. Not only does he does he like wearing hats outside and does he get to, but he permitted us to, if you've seen the show, spoiler alert, make fun of it as we went. There were no scissors, no rock, no paper. <laughs> I just wasn't doing it. I had just said that I loved the hat. I had been, I had been tricked. Back to that. Yeah. And by love, I mean, peace. I had just said it. For the record, in fairness, I said, Randall, you got this. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the writer's room, how much is there a process of being like, wouldn't it be funny to just hear Harrison Ford say certain things or do certain things? Yeah, or sing a 90s one-hit wonder in the car with Jessica Williams. Uh, honestly, not to be, not a fun answer, but I think that's true of all of the actors. Like, once you get to know the actors in the cast, it's really exciting to write for them. Because you go, like, Jessica's fucking fine. Jason's fucking fine. Lakeith's amazing. Luke's amazing. Like, Chris is amazing. It becomes exciting to write any line. Once you've got their voice, 
within a few episodes and they they are now confident and comfortable in their character it's true for all of them can i add something i think i got to see this as an observer i wasn't i was filming so i wasn't in the writer's room as the episodes progressed but i think that's true of all the actors but especially of harrison something broadens because it does start with wouldn't it be fun to see harrison say this Mm -hmm. but then you started to see like Oh, he's here to do comedy around like midway through the season. He's doing like moves. Yeah. He's doing proper comedy moves. And all of a sudden I noticed that the writing for Harrison became different of like, it's not Harrison being grumpy while people do comedy around him. And then he does a one liner. He becomes part of the part of the action comedically. It was, it was really fun to watch. Um, and to give credit where credit is due, I, 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 have gotten better at not taking credit for the performers as much as I used to, because I'm this show, you guys already just had a great example. So we talked to all the actors and actresses that we get more comfortable with them. Uh, you can hit Jessica Williams when you guys eventually cross paths with her. She made the mistake of saying to us that uh, she's absurdly passionate about one hit wonder bands and has a number of songs that she knows every lyric by heart. And, uh, she made the mistake of say of literally saying, you know, listing uh, whatever that song's called. I don't even know it. it. Makes my head hurt every morning. Yeah, every morning. And she, and she. Yeah. By the way, and we meet it in the writers' room. Like, if she doesn't think that she's going to be doing that, this is the story of. She, we didn't say you have to learn these. She said these are the songs I know every lyric to and can sing in my brain, even though people think it's really weird and is not my voice. So we, we, you know, Harrison did the same thing. The amount of stuff that came out of his mouth first and then went onto the show mm. was fairly high. If you put a Sugar Ray song in the script, does Harrison <laughs> immediately go, I already know that I can do that? Or does he does he go full method and spend a weekend listening? Or how does that go? I, I do know the answer to this because this is what was fascinating to me and it's Harrison Ford's uh, process in comedy. He said, because Jessica was bouncing around about which song it would be, um, because she has her own favorites and, and she has real ownership of that character. And Harrison at one point said, yeah, I got a lot of work this week. I'll probably just bop along and dance to whatever it is. And I was not in the car because it was, you know, a real process trailer and all that stuff. And then I got the dailies and sometime between action and cut, you learned all the lines. I was high fiving and enjoying himself. You know what I mean, so that's his process. I love that. Right. Because, like, the dude is 80 years old and has as much material and is not used to, you know, he said to me at one point, um, if we do one and a half pages on Raiders, it's a huge day sometimes. You know? mm-hmm. I'm like, strap it on for eight pages of dialogue, my friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about Jason's character because he sort of everything spins out from around him. And He's a therapist who cares a lot, which is obviously something that you want in a therapist. But at a certain point, his extreme tactics become, I, I don't know, does does this guy feel like sort of the best case scenario for a therapist you sit down with? Or would this be your nightmare if, if you guys were in therapy and this was the guy you were doing it with? Well, I think comedy by definition is that he's both, right? Like that's what the show plays with. It's like uh, it's working to varying degrees of success and failure. And that's where the humor comes in. And what they did a really good job at is making those successes and failures feel unexpected and turning upside down on themselves as the season goes on. So there's a reason people don't do this this way uh, therapeutically, but uh, it's, it's fun to watch him try to figure it out. To be a nerd, Jason uh, and Brett and I, 
interviewed a bazillion therapists, um, some that get more involved in people's lives. There's a documentary about one of the therapists we interviewed, Phil Stutz, on Netflix. Um, some that get uh, less involved. I will say, without giving a spoiler away from the finale, it would be a mistake if they all went bad, and it would also be a big mistake if it all got tied up nicely in a bow and it all worked out. That's right. But for you guys personally, would this seem like a good version of therapy or a very, very, very bad version of therapy? Uh, you know, this is I'll start with the candid admission and then these guys can decide. Um, um, one of the three of us is very comfortable admitting that he's a Hollywood dude that's therapied up and uh, uh, has, you know. Um, um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bill. It's so Bill. Think, you know, <laughs> and this is. Um, Full disclosure, I, you know, I have a, a, a shrink um, um, who uh, works with Phil Stutz. It's how he ended up being one of the people that we interviewed along with a bunch of others. And for me, um, somebody that'll say, oh, stop doing that shit, you know, and actually in cognitive behavioral therapy, get in there and be, I need it. You know, it, it doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but I respond to it. He's not coming over to my house or showing up at dinners or anything. You know, but it's a license, I think, that you take for television or for storytelling. I won't answer for you. Uh, I will say your therapist is not doing great. I'm giving her your feedback. Uh, <laughs> you agreed with some of it, annoying. Uh, I think sorry. I think it's <laughs> like uh what do I think? There's an element of like wish fulfillment in this show in terms of, I think it's a great idea, but I also, I kind of agree with what Harrison says in the first episode, like what you take away their autonomy. And, you know, I think, I think therapy is necessarily slow in real life. And I think it's, you would hate someone coming in and telling you what to do. I'd be like, get the fuck out of my house. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Because it's how I live in my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. What are you, man? What's your strength like? Here, is it he or she? It's a he. I agree. You know, I think there's something that Phil Stutz himself said in that Phil Stutz documentary where he's like, you can get to the root of why you're doing something over and over and over again and never actually have that be an agent for change. Mm. So I do think that Someone who says, here's how you fix it is wish fulfillment yeah. because that, that is part of, that is a different thing. You know, like I can figure out that it's because my mom said this when I was in fifth grade, but what now? I will pump up uh, the documents, documentary stuts. Cause one thing I found fascinating, we're not doing this, but uh, they wrote a bestselling book called the tools. And if you were to say why, you know, we had to know that this thing existed in the real world and as a, some version of it, and uh, uh, as a dime store, you know, as an easy translation, what the tools meant to me was therapists finding a way to go, hey, you know, that horrible thing that's happening to you over and over. Here's a tool of how to stop doing it so that your life doesn't get worse and worse. You know, and the B side of that is and then we can do the work, cognitive behavioral therapy work, you know, on um, figuring out 
what's going on, why it's happening, how you can change to stop it, and all that other stuff. It's not what we're doing, but at least for us, as we examine different schools like that, there are versions of this that are not half-hour comedies on a streaming site that people are maybe a little more buried in less traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, there were a lot of folks who prioritized mental health um, during the quarantine period of the of the pandemic. What do you guys say to those who may think shrinking is an insult to therapy? Uh, I, I wasn't prepped for the question, but I'll go first if you want. <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, you know, um, uh, look, if we're going to say that any time a show about a bad teacher is an insult to education or any time a show about a bad doctor is an insult to medicine. Um, uh, I think that limits storytelling. I don't think that I we would ever go, this is an example of the best therapist out there. You know, um, on the other hand, uh, I think the responsibility is that uh, the person, the character at least, gives a shit and cares and is trying whether it's misguided or not. Does that mean that they won't evolve or pay consequences for mistakes? Absolutely not. So I think, you know, can't please everybody. And I'm sure we'll get uh, uh, tagged by that a little bit here and there. That was the thing we did. It was something we talked about early on and always is like, we did have a lot of therapists as consultants and we were always like, you know, you're constantly playing with the tone and with the, the edges of this thing and can we go this broad can we go this sad you know and I think with the even with the stuff that Jason's doing it's like we never took it we never took it so far that any of the people we were talking to who were therapists were like this is insane and really offensive (laughs) you need to like not it was all within a kind of I'll tell you something that's fascinating that it's a spoiler so if you don't want to spoil our viewers listeners pardon me um the it, people are always surprised when because we do have uh, consultants on the show, and the thing they found most egregious um, is not what people would normally pick as most egregious. And for us, instead of going, "Oh no, we can't do this," we knew it was a story opportunity as we move down that we have to make sure it has consequences. And the spoiler was that the most egregious thing was uh, having a patient um, move into your guest house. Yeah. And I, I would have picked other things as more egregious, yeah. to tell you the truth. Because, you know, seriously, because, you know, I'm like, what about this? No, it's fine. What about this? No, it's fine. You yeah, know? Bill is constantly trying to get me to move into his house. <laughs> like, he, he see that as well. I think just to add on, and I agree, the show is not a, a therapy manual. I think what's part of the premise of the show is kind of peeking behind the curtain and seeing these people that we kind of can view as just authority figures who know everything are actually just flawed human beings when you get to know them as fully realized people. That's, that's part of the premise of the show. Like what if your therapist themselves was going through a nervous breakdown? So it's sort of part of the comedy. Now, obviously sloppy and messy characters are kind of the bedrock of TV comedy, but it feels to me like as a rule, those characters rarely apologize because if they were apologizing, that would be a sign of wanting change, and we don't want our wacky sitcom characters to change. But, Bill, I feel like on your shows, characters spend a lot of time apologizing to each other, to themselves. And I feel like this show in particular is a lot of people finding different ways to say I'm sorry for things. Does that feel like something that's actually central to your comic philosophy? 
Uh, by the way, I'm laughing because you internalize everything narcissistically, and uh, you will not be surprised to know that I find myself apologizing a lot. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, as I become older and shrinked up, I try to face this music, you know what I mean? And, um, um, there's nothing worse than trying to dance around that shit. And it, it, it makes me feel authentic and emotionally invested when people face it and own up, you know? And, um, look, if there's a universal component to this show that requires the apology aspect of it, on Ted Lasso, not to go back, one of the things Jason Sudeikis did that I thought was really cool and I had never been in through it before is when we met with every writer, um, Jason and I had spoken a bunch and, and, and he knew that he wanted the show to be heavy about mentorship and the upsides and downsides, you know, of, you know, can it go, you know, if you mentor someone, you better stay in the game or they can suddenly feel neglected and it can come back to bite you, you know, mm -hmm. and, but by the same token, there's no one in Hollywood that didn't get here with at least, even though there's so many bad stories about Hollywood, with at least one positive kind of, um, um, you know, mentorship story that got, and I thought it was amazing what we appropriated from that on this show. <clears throat> and I, I, I don't want to say either of yours, but we made people, everybody is at most two degrees, but usually directly attached to dealing with grief. Yeah. You know, um, my dad is really struggling right now and my family right or wrong gets through it, uh, with, uh, comedy and facing the music. And when we screw up, apologizing to each other for not being kind of emotionally there and for dropping the ball and trying to assuage the guilt you feel by not when your father lives on the other side of the country and not, not being there all the time. Um, and one by one, you know, the writers got more comfortable. And I don't, I don't want to tell anything about your story because I got a text about that before, uh, which, is, which is true. And I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, so what I'm hoping is that even though that's, you know, kind of thematically part of this, that it seems authentic when we're talking about grief and if not authentic, at least there's a little bit of wish fulfillment that we could all be like that with the people we love. Yeah. I hope. I'm still working through the freaks and geeks cancellation. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> that was <sad. laughs> Um, you yeah, yeah. that stuff in your life, man. I mean, my, right now. my, uh, yes, the, the, the whole Parkinson's uh, storyline is uh, very uh, personal to me and my and my family, and um, and so being and and I also think I don't know how it's come up, but I think we're very very lucky. I think we're very lucky in every fucking aspect. Let's be honest, but we're very lucky to be able to dealing with these serious difficult things and being able to put them into writing and, and create these work with all that stuff I think that's the the greatest privilege of all the things that we get to do is that's, sort of yeah I think anyone who's making anything of value whether they know it or not even at the time is working through their own shit I, mm -hmm. I look back on stuff I've written having no idea what it was about until I watch it a little later and thought, oh, that's right what I was going through at the time. And I didn't even realize this whole thing was sort of a metaphor around that. Yeah. And in, in terms of the, the the thing about sitcoms and characters not changing and stuff, I guess, like, I fucking admire, you know, shows like Frasier which is, and Cheers, which are, like, masterful and ran for hundreds of years and, like... Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, rubs and rubs. <laughs> uh, you know these these shows which kind of reset. Yeah. Scrubs doesn't reset. It's, it has oh, they evolved a little bit. Yeah, uh, I, I they had to, or people would have yeah, killed me. It was all too yeah, long. I think it's that's a certain type of thing, but it's a, it's. I think it means your 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 storytelling ends up essentially being shorter because people change. But I think having the ability for your characters to change is so much fun and gives you a real proper arc for everyone and you're not faking a thing where and everything's back to exactly how it was at the beginning you know guys i'm the last person left that i was freaking people out the other night of like the first four years of spin city we did 106 episodes and now when you go pitch these shows you like even for this one we're talking to harrison we said we see it as a three season story and this is where it begins and here's some consequences and, and here's where it ends, you know, and it's just such a different world when you're kind of crafting these things that almost gives you not only the right to change characters, but the necessity to, or you're going to lose people. Speaking of changing, uh, Jason, you mentioned the text you got from, from Harrison and uh, your genitals were a subject of much conversation at TCA press tour last week. And I assume you spend a lot of time having to talk about them with people. Uh, but it's interesting that they're discussed on the show. They are a topic of conversation, but you do not expose yourself. Is that a sign of growing maturity on your part, or does Apple have very specific standards and practices? <laughs> no, I think, honestly, I've actually thought a lot about this, uh, weirdly, that um, <laughs> what can I do with these on this one, I think? Uh, no, I think that when I was 25 years old, that was... Uh, the most extreme version of vulnerability that I could imagine. And as I've gotten older and more mature emotionally, we have things in this show that feel equally as vulnerable, but they're emotionally vulnerable. So there are scenes where my character is reminiscing about his dead wife, where my goal was for the energy around it to feel as vulnerable as when I did full frontal nudity. So I think it is just an example of like maybe some emotional growth. I still think full frontal nudity is funny, but you know, season two, save it for season two. Never on Apple, you guys. Family streaming service. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so you're launching with two episodes, and then shrinking is going to follow the Ted Lasso path of of weekly airings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill, did that feel natural for this show? And has Ted Lasso informed your sense of how viewers watch comedies like this in 2023? it's a conversation I had a billion times. If anybody had figured out what's best without a shadow of a doubt, everybody would do the same thing. Right. And so um, I'm so it's not even a pat answer. I'm just grateful to Apple for giving me a ton of opportunity. And uh, 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 one of the great people over there sold it to me like this of uh, um, the people that dig binging shows uh, are going to wait six weeks and binge it. And they have the, data to prove it off of Ted Lasso, you know what I mean? And the, and the people that want to watch it week to week, you know what I mean? And have that kind of build up and that kind of feeling of like, Oh, what's going on. They'll do that. So, you know, maybe it's the best of both worlds, but uh, uh, I haven't figured out how I watch TV myself yet. We talk about it. The writer's room is one of our ways to waste time, which I, I, I got a top 10 that I can tell you later, but um one of them is, one of them was doing the top 10 one of them's doing the top 10 and we also do something called brackets where we pit things against each other for no reason but the uh 
is no bullshit. There's some shows that I like watching week to week and some shows mm. that I'm like, I'm going to wait. And I want to binge this thing. And I don't know what the hell the difference is. And it's got to be the storytelling or how people are doing it, you know, but I liked White Lotus week to week. Yeah, I think it was, look, I I'm embarrassed to say this because regardless of this show, I think it's to do with, ideally, the show is rich and has a lot going on in it and you want to take it in and take your time with it. It sometimes upsets me when, I, I remember watching, because we didn't get it in England and I, I got a box set of 30 Rock and I watched it like it, a lot of it, maybe 10 episodes in one go. And I remember feeling guilty afterwards because it was so good and so packed full of stuff. And I thought, God, I didn't give it its time that it needed. I should have been clapping after every episode and writing an essay. Like it was so full and I just like whacked through it. But I still feel guilty for that. I'm so sorry for that, you Rob. I think also week to week, if there's one element of the show that is about that we're all in this together, which I think is sort of where our show leads, something about week to week keeps everyone on the same pace. Yeah. And so you are talking about you are talking about the same thing at the same time. Mm. And then you watch the next one all together and you have a week of that too. There's some camaraderie built in. And there's the thing, yeah. And you want uh there's kind of a cliffhanger every episode. You want people to be like, Oh, that's oh it. we got away. Oh, that's a good thing. Oh, I was watching this like a tennis match because I still, I was, I'm still not sure what's right or wrong. Anyway, I, you know, I don't, I don't understand any of this stuff. <laughs> I'm constantly told that I don't. Uh, it, it's it, Apple constantly sending me things to post, and my answer to every email is "love to, don't know how." <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to do it. I really don't. Know yeah, how. <laughs> that's cool. I'm gonna try that with bills. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a show about that that's exploring therapy being a weekly thing because it's like it almost gives you time to kind of digest the advice or whatever you know, however good or bad that may be. It kind of tracks at least it's the way that you know what therapy yeah. is too. As, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a. I mean, for me, it's a weekly thing. Brett does it three or four times a week, but for most of us, for most of us, we just go. still nothing, still nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Bill, at TCA last week, you, you promised that we would get some sort of Ted Lasso announcement during during the Apple Day. Obviously, we we got the a first look photo and and news that the show would return in, in sometime in the spring, but there was no mention of if it will be if season three will be the final season. Where do things stand with that? And obviously, the show, um, the, all the cast members have options for more uh, beyond season three. Um, the uh, look, this is an easy yes. answer for me uh, because we all have crossed paths long enough to know that I'm fiercely protective uh, of um, my shows and of everybody on them. Brett and I are always in the position here of wanting to be clear that we want to be so deferential to we're not intentionally annoying people by not answering. So deferential to Jason Sudeikis because he is. Um, truly with, uh, you know, you, you could, again, you guys have calendars. I got, because Jason's such a talented writer and actor and uh, creator and leader with Joe Kelly and Brendan Hunt, the other creators and Brett over there producing it, he is running the show the uh, the third year. And um, all these questions, I always want to be super careful. The answers are his to make. And respectfully, I'm, 
you know, uh, uh, going to let him make them. You know, I mean, you feel the same way. I also, I, I listen with with all due respect to you guys and everything. I find it funny that people keep asking, as if we wouldn't say if we knew. Like, I find it odd. Like, I, I mean, it's nice that everyone cares so much, but it's such a weird thing where it's like you're keeping secrets, and it's like obviously, I no, I don't know anything. I, I used to joke. Look, I'm a Hollywood producer at my core, so you know, I think people don't have a full. Um, understanding of what undertaking it is for Jason to never leave the writer's room, to never leave the editing room, to be on it and to be doing it overseas uh, as a father, you know, and and a guy with a life. Um, So uh, uh, I'm sure though, the same way that I'm sure that I was sure that something was going to be said the other time, uh, I'm sure, you know, as Jason's cutting these shows and getting through it, um, once he's through with that, he'll figure out what's going to happen next in the lasso verse. I'll say this which I've said before, I would happily do it forever, but it is not in my, in my hands. Uh, well, Brett, with, what about a Roy Kent spinoff? I mean, that Roy Kent as a show title definitely has a ring to it. That's an idea. Maybe you could just call Roy, it Roy. Roy and Mindy. Kent. What's that? Roy and Mindy. Roy and Mindy, like Morgan Mindy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I would see Roy and Hercules tomorrow <laughs> if it pitted them against each other. Wait, he's no, both. Man. Yeah, he'd have to work all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like quite that. hard to improvise when you're having to keep taking your top off. Actually, they're both top. This is fine. I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and Bill, we can't have you on the podcast without a general state of TV comedy question because sure. nobody nobody gives that answer better than you do. Uh, so the bro- a broadcast show just won the Golden Globe for a comedy series. Ghost Justin is- Patrick, this guy, this guys are rock stars. Man, it's such a good show. And uh, multiple time guests on the podcast, uh, Justin and Patrick are. So, um, but okay, so you've got that. You've got Ghosts, which is a hit. You've got Night Court, which apparently is a a hit. Is broadcast TV back? Exclamation point, exclamation point. And specifically broadcast TV comedy. Okay, here's what I truly believe the positive of uh, uh, none of us. Do you guys remember? I mean, I'm older than you both, uh, but. The amount that we would cling to, uh, when do we get the overnights? When do we get the nationals? And when do we get the other, right? Was, and by the way, that your job, uh, and and he was on one, and he watched them. I can't include you on this. (laughs) 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 The job in network television, you always felt when you were going in to pitch it, was that someone would go, hey, you need to come up with a comedy because you're a comedy writer. Right. It needs to appeal to everyone. Wait, 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 wait. You mean like every age? No, we mean every age, every political spectrum, every ethnicity. Everyone needs to want to watch it when? Some of the time, all the time. Everyone needs to want to watch it all the time. So to me, the biggest deal is people very quickly go, oh my God, it's a negative. The hit, the new hit show, only one and a half million people watch it. It's not a negative. It just means that now, yes, I believe that that you might be back to the time I used to always lament that when I started network television, I was so old, your show could come out of the gates and not crush. And people would actually say, well, you got 22 episodes to bring people around. Do you know what I mean? And, and they would take the time, you know, if they saw some quality in it. So I am very, very optimistic um, that we are entering a world that quality on network old old school network television can sustain by finding a loyal 
you know, niche audience that will follow it from place to place because the metric isn't so ridiculously arbitrary and high that you have to hit anymore, you know? So I'm feeling very bullish. Would you return to doing comedy on broadcast? No. <laughs> not, by the way, not not because I uh, shake my head at it, but for me personally, you're signing on for a shit ton of work, oh. man. And it is, um, you know, uh, uh, Justin Patrick's offices are uh, next to mine over at Warner Brothers, and um, I scoff at their hours. Uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a big old undertaking. But what is cool about it, the other subtext I will tell you is that. Overnight, streaming television has become the independent film business in terms of, you know, hey, here's my show and it's starring Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford. Will you buy it? And the cool thing is that then network TV, which had its you know window, everybody was like, uh, who's the lead in this show, has a small shift back to, hey, maybe network TV can discover stars again mm, you know what i mean and cool. maybe because the things have changed you can go yeah quinn and brunson can carry you guys think when i started out that someone's gonna make and promote the quinn and brunson show no they'd be like nobody knows who she is and now she's a monster you know what i mean and i mean that uh, using the word monster positively don't spin at anybody you guys know what I, uh, so that to me i think is a huge positive and I, I want to go back full circle. Um, Brett and Jason, how nerd, give us a sense of how nerdy your Muppet conversations have gotten. Yeah. And when is the announcement for whatever Muppet collab that you guys are going to be doing coming? Go on, Brett. Did you guys see Brett on Sesame Street? Of course. It was, it was incredible. Uh, first person that sent uh, videos to was Jason. I got a little clip. He also really sweetly, when he was filming it, sent me a clip of the Muppets saying hi and that they missed me. Do you remember that? I do. It really meant... Can I just interject for a second so you know how nerdy they, these guys are? You know that they don't miss you. They you know, miss no, you know they, they, <laughs> Do you know what it's like when I'm not around? <laughs> like this, Phil. <laughs> in your heads, in your collective heads, the inanimate puppets miss you. They miss this you. And the disgruntled people that have to be there for hours... <laughs> This is why your wife is mean to you. <laughs> the Muppets don't miss you. They're they not do. real. They, they miss, miss you. me a lot. They miss it. They're not real. Um, they're pretty dorky. We talk about like how they're so innocent and so sweet and how they miss us. And it's just like really <laughs> you have nice long conversations about it. I know it sounds like we're doing shtick. I will tell you from an outsider, these two talk about them as if they're living sentient beings. <laughs> And I find it maddening. Honest to God, and I'm not, this is not sarcastic. Like, my first acting idol was Kermit the Frog because he's like the everyman. And then from there, as you get older, it's like Tom Hanks and Jimmy Stewart. Oh, that's what Kermit the Frog is doing. But I didn't know that one as a kid. I like, thought you were that guy. I evolved to Oscar. He's yeah, complicated. Yeah. Eventually, you got to do Ralph the Dog because you don't yeah. realize he's intentionally being ironic. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, Jason, there was a rumor going around. I don't. I can't remember how long ago this was about uh, about something, uh, maybe uh, a show being a, a spinoff of the Dracula stage show from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I don't know if that's true or not, but would, was is that something that you would ever want to revisit that? I had an idea. Uh, do you remember when that Lin-Manuel Miranda um, kind of documentary about the making of Hamilton going to Broadway came out? 
I wanted to do my version of a mockumentary of Peter Bretter bringing the Dracula musical to Broadway. That's cool. I will pay you. I would pay my money. Yeah. Did you did you make music for that? Uh, some of it, yeah, with a guy named Peter Sillette. Please yeah. make that. Uh, so I thought about that for a while and it just never came to fruition. It was actually right when we started this, but I, I haven't done it yet. Right. You'll find it. Jason. <laughs> Jason has forgotten that just by saying the idea in front of me, I own like 20% of it. Absolutely. Cool. No, I count on it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll get in on that too, by the way. I, I would I would want to see that. I would too, by the way. I really want to see that. Joking aside. It would be great. So, I mean, realistically though, how, I mean, are you, have you guys talked about actually doing something with, with the Muppets? I will tell you, this is why these guys think of the right answer. <laughs> I have been, you would never guess this. You know that I've been on the Muppets more than you and less than Jason. Do you know that, have you ever seen the Muppet uh, special when they go to Hollywood? I fire, I'm the... And as the director of Scrubs, I fire Miss Piggy. No way. I get in a conversation with Kermit that I had to let her go. And I'm amazing. I bet you are. I'm not, That's I'm amazing. Humble too, right? I'm not good. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, not, not only am I not good, I'm going to make these guys mad. But after they called cut, uh, the the dudes as one of the puppets, you know, and they're below the thing. The puppet was like, in the puppet voice, I thought that was pretty good because they stay in character. And I actually said to a hand, don't do that. Oh, my God, you did. Oh. Oh. That's like the Grinch. How dare you insult the Muppets? Don't talk to me in hand voice yeah. when it's not on. They aren't real. They don't miss you. Talk to the hand. It's a whole expression. They don't miss you. They don't miss you. <laughs> I'm trying not to get genuinely curious. <laughs> I just feel like they're not real. They don't miss you. Would be a really great tagline for the next Muppets movie. <laughs> they're not real. They don't miss you. Written by Bill Lawrence, naturally. I know, right? Um, <laughs> so you guys have to answer the Muppet question for real, because I know you both are, would kill to do that again. Listen, I would love to do a Muppet film. Absolutely love to do a Muppet film. And I, uh, I would love to do anything that Jason uh, wanted. I would let. I mean, all, all. I'm now sort of just thinking many things. One is that I'm really upset with what Bill said, but also <laughs> that I want to see. You know, it's real. You know, it's real that I said that. I know you said that, and it makes me so crap for the Muppets. Yeah, they're fine. No, they're not. They're really bummed right now. God, this interview was going so well, and we decided to end it on the darkest, saddest note possible. Gee whiz. That's not our fault, Dan. It's Bill's. My, uh, my stick is a nice guy just gets completely refuted as a guy that's mean to Muppets. It was really funny. Totally. Oh, look, hey, I'll, I'll say something sentimental because I see this case talking in case you want to use it. You probably edit it out. The, uh, uh, my, uh, for real, my thing of, at this point in my life and career trying to make sure everything's fun and working with people that you like anyways. Uh, I am enjoying this so much. Uh, and this is not fabricated. We enjoy hanging out. Yeah. If it meant having to talk to a, a grown man or woman with a puppet on their hand and pretend that the hand thing was real, if that meant how I got to work with you guys again, I'd probably do it. Wow. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> It's really cool. Wow. Really taking one for the team there, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> I'd go that far. Wow. By the way, you know what I think they should do, just so you guys can feel it, is in between scenes, they should take the puppets off, but still talk to you like so they can go, I thought that scene was really and then you see yeah, that spoils it. That spoils it. <laughs> <laughs> 
you've got a childish heart, Bill. <laughs> Such an innocent heart. <laughs> Well, sadly, we do have to to wrap, but we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you each been watching and enjoying outside of shrinking cuts? Does it have to be TV? can be anything, whatever you're enjoying. You can't all the Oscar movies. I'll do TV for you. It's TV. Do something TV, even though you're a movie nerd. You've seen his podcast, Films to be Buried With. It's awesome. I just promoted it. Thanks. Mm. And you've been at Largo uh, a couple. You got some dates at Largo coming up uh, in February. You know you won't let with us May go. Martin? You know, Brett, you're not allowed to go, which is really annoying. Oh, so you two can't go anywhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to get tickets. Already sold out. Uh, yeah. I am watching uh, right now um, Point Break. It's uh, Breakpoint is a cool, it's ridiculously good because we walk. It was so fascinating. It's tennis. I played tennis. I love it. And, you know, whether it's the Agassi Sampras's, Serena Williams, Borgs, macros all those people are you know these giant personalities are gone and to watch that show and get to know these young men and women on that level and then simultaneously watching the australian open right now it's awesome even if you're not a huge tennis fan it's one of those things the same way the formula one doc series worked you know i'm really digging it Mm -hmm. last thing i watched in its entirety was the uh, shack documentary on Mm -hmm. hbo i I, I thought it was awesome that was so interesting yeah, then there's a good, really good Nolan Ryan documentary out right now too. If you're a baseball fan, yeah, shrinking. I mean, Paul Goldman is. I think I got the title right. I'm getting into that, and I'm as a TV fan, I'm fascinated and so curious as to how I'm going to feel as I continue watching. Um, I highly recommend one of the films of last year, which I believe is Silver's in America, and it's a small British film called After Sun, and yeah. it is incredible. It is a masterpiece. You should all go and see it on the big screen. It's about nighttime, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Okay, do one more. Is uh, I never thought I would get um, my boys to watch um, a foreign film, and there's this giant Indian movie called RRR. Right. And mm-hmm. it is just a just assault of ideas and visuals. Okay. And music. It's really cool. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And now I feel like we need to let you guys stand up because you look like you've been squished on that couch for a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just yeah. to see our relative heights, maybe. Yeah. Let's do you, do you want to do it? Well, it's just going to be cautious for them. No, I'll, I'll tilt it up. I'll tilt it up. Oh, there we go. Oh, we look cool. Yeah. All right. Album cover called it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you guys so much. Hey, that was fun as always, guys. I appreciate it. Shrinking premieres Friday, January 27th on Apple TV+. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Poker Face on Peacock, starring Natasha Lyonne, The 1619 Project over at Hulu, Wolfpack on Paramount+, Plus. hi, Sarah Michelle Geller. and you just heard our interview with the Brain Trusts behind Shrinking, which launches on Apple. Dan, what do you got? Uh, I think I, I think I got those shows that you just mentioned. There are a lot of other shows that I haven't had the chance to get to because, as I might have mentioned, there is too much TV, Leslie. Um, it's kind of notable that something like the 1619 Project at Hulu, uh, which is one of those Onyx Collective productions and also executive produced by Oprah Winfrey, among other big-name people, has been getting as little buzz as it has. I, I think it points to what I discussed in my review of it, which was that the endeavor that the show attempted in the New York Times 
And, you know, obviously you've either read the series in the New York Times from Nicole Hannah-Jones or you've seen the bad faith arguments about it in various different conservative outlets. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a phenomenon. It was a conversation piece. It was a reminder that in certain cases, legacy media really can steer the public conversation. And, you know, that... It, it was a remarkable thing and won the Pulitzer Prize, spawned a book, et cetera, et cetera. And now the TV series is premiering with basically no conversation. And part of that, if we're being honest, is that the thing that the project did in the newspaper world was, it was unique. It was a thing that defined the landscape. Whereas the thing that the show does in the TV world I don't know. I, maybe TV is simply doing better with this, but what 1619 Project does as a TV show is something that, for example, HBO's Exterminate All the Brutes or several different shows from Sasha Jenkins on Showtime or dozens of PBS documentaries over the past couple of years have already done. They haven't done it always with the exact same degree of thought and interconnectivity as the TV version of 1619 Project does. But for the most part, they've done it with a significantly better sense of the new medium. And I think that, unfortunately, is what the problem is with the 1619 Project, is that it is not well enough reimagined for television. It is still basically a a glorified series of essays with some very, very familiar stock footage and some decent uh, autobiographical memoir-esque notes from Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is central to the project. But at almost every stage watching it, my reaction was, I swear I've, I've seen other things that have discussed this same information and in some cases discussed it better. Like there's an episode about the appropriation of black music uh, basically into American music over 200 years. And it's basically in 50 minutes, it rushes through the entire history of popular American musical culture. And over and over again, I thought this is... This is a 10-minute segment that's been the subject of an eight-part documentary series. Why am I watching it as a 10-part, as a 10-minute summary when I could watch a much better, much more thorough version of it? And unfortunately, I thought that in many cases uh, through 1619 Project. I still think that a lot of what it does, it does very well. I think the sixth episode, which gives the series' argument in favor of, of reparations, I think it is a really, really cogent argument that shoots down so many of the arguments against reparations. And I think it does it in a smart way. It does it in a difficult to argue with way. I think that's a good episode of TV um, and an important episode of TV. It's also an episode of TV that people who don't believe what it espouses will never in a million years sit through. So it's hard to know what its value is going to be conversationally. I think there's value here. I just wish it was a little bit better um i wish there was any value at all to wolfpack on on paramount plus uh you can you can get as excited as you want about sarah michelle geller's return to television and return to the world of supernatural television uh wolfpack is is pretty garbagey um it is based on a book by a canadian author a ito van belcorn i do not know him it is adapted by jeff davis who of course adapted 
Teen Wolf. Uh, Teen Wolf was not the best of television shows. Uh, Teen Wolf, I think I made it through three or four seasons of it, which is actually a pretty fair amount. And it had better and worse moments, but <laughs> it was not a consistent TV show. And I would say it started off fairly atrocious and became gradually better, in part because there were a lot of elements of the cast that were really good. Like they they found a lot of really solid young actors in that cast, and they were able to use those actors and their gifts to overcome a lot of very bad writing and very bad plotting. And it's possible that Wolfpack could eventually do that. But the first two episodes, the premise of the show is basically uh, there, there are fires around Los Angeles and in the process of one of the fires, a bunch of animals are, are scared away from the forest. And that group of animals includes something that bites a couple of surly high school students and they become, um, well, I don't know <laughs> it's unclear in the first two episodes what they become, except that they're going to become werewolves. I, I don't think that's spoiling anything or no. any, or anything that anyone's going to care about. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but but basically, in the short term, all that's happened is that uh, the girl who has acne scars, her acne scars go away. And the guy who wears sort of billowy sweatshirts, he takes off his shirt and he goes, oh, my God, I have abs now. And uh, that's that's a plot point. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller plays an arson investigator who, for the purposes of the first two episodes, is completely unconnected to any plot line involving actual werewolves. I assume she eventually is going to be whether or not she's a wolf herself. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I'm not spoiling anything. I also don't care. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> just just go watch Buffy on Hulu. I mean, when, when I had COVID, you know, I was watching a lot of comfort food things and um, I watched, I happened to stumble on Hush airing on, I think it was Fuse when I was surfing this, the the remote um yeah that holds up still creepy as hell um also coincidentally uh in, in in a bit of late night insomnia during covid i actually watched teen wolf not the mtv show the original teen wolf with michael j fox it does not hold up oh that's bs <laughs> it totally it totally holds up it has some it totally has some messed up sexual politics that and part, totally has sure. some homophobia in it oh no too. no it's it, it, it okay it's got problems and if i'm being completely honest i haven't watched it straight through in probably about 20 years uh, i got about 30 minutes into the into teen wolf 2 which michael j fox was smart enough to not come back for and uh pardon the pun here but wolf <laughs> Um, yes, uh, though there were pictures of Jason Bateman and Michael J. Fox uh, together from Sundance, uh, where there was a Michael J. Fox documentary, and I believe Jason Bateman stars in something, and I thought that was very lightly amusing. Um, anyway, I remain pissed off at the Teen Wolf TV series for never introducing a, a boof character. I think that was a ridiculously bad decision, and I still don't understand what they thought they were doing. Uh, also, but, just what a great character name, Boof. Oh, it's... Uh, like, holds up. For sure. But anyway, um, yes, Wolfpack, not very good. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller plays an arson investigator who goes around for two episodes introducing herself to people as an arson investigator, and that's basically what her character does. So Just, just watch Buffy. Just watch Buffy. Just watch Buffy. Um, okay, so uh, from the shows that I was either disappointed by or didn't like at all to a couple shows that I like varying amounts. Um, 
Poker Face is Peacock, and Peacock has been getting a little bit of buzz. Uh, you might have heard uh, some less appealing stories involving the amount of money that they were losing at Peacock, uh, and that is absolutely true, though some subscriber growth. Anyway, we've been trying to figure out what's happening at Peacock for a while. Maybe we'll get some answers, say, sometime in the semi-near future, hypothetically. Um, spoiler alert. Hypothetically. Uh, but <laughs> at least in the short term, Paul T. Goldman definitely got a lot of people talking about various peacocky things. And, and the, you just heard the, our, the shrinking guys talking about it. Exactly. Uh, and the reality show or the competition show Traders, uh, hosted by Alan Cumming, people seem to like that. And people seem to be, and again, when I say people, I mean people in the little bubble that I live in. I have no idea what the widespread human race is thinking. And I don't believe anyone else does either, with the possible exception of apparently Taylor Sheridan. Uh, but... Otherwise, yes. So Poker Face is new on Peacock, and it's very clearly a, a, a niche show. It, it is a show designed for people who have a certain nostalgia for a certain kind of 70s, 80s, character-driven crime investigation procedural. So Columbo is the clear antecedent, uh, Rockford Files to a lesser degree, and then also a bunch of kind of earlier shows, the the cane from Kung Fu who walks the earth uh, setting wrong what's been right genre, which or maybe setting right what's been wrong. Yeah, that makes much more sense. Actually, give me a show about a guy who goes around the country kind of messing things up for people in different cities. That would be a good show. Why have we not gotten the reverse of cane from Kung Fu? Anyway, continuing along. Uh yeah, so that's, a, you know, a pretty big genre in and of itself, whether it's Kung Fu, whether it's the Incredible Hulk, whether it's The Fugitive. So it, this is kind of a mixture of those two genres. It stars Natasha Lyonne, maybe a friend of the five, Natasha Lyonne, definitely a former very, very good podcast guest, Natasha Lyonne, uh, as a woman who has basically a perfect internal lie detector. She can tell when people are are lying, and this has gotten into her, her into a lot of trouble over the years. She cheated at cards. Well, is it really cheating if, if you're not using enhanced technology, if you're just looking at people and you can tell that they're lying? It's presented here as the thing that people who run casinos think is cheating. So, uh, she, she's gotten in trouble over the years. She's working as a cocktail waitress at a, a dingy way, way, way off strip casino. And uh, when her best friend is killed, she gets into trouble with the casino owner and with the head of security, who's played by Benjamin Bratt. And she goes on the run. And that's in the first episode. And then subsequent episodes are basically her traveling through the country in her 1969 uh, Barracuda, basically taking odd jobs in which people die mysteriously every single place she goes. She's sort of a roving Jessica Fletcher. And she's using her lie detector gifts, but also her general curiosity to attempt to solve crimes wherever she goes. Uh, there are lots of terrific guest stars in each episode, whether it's Lil Rel Howery as a, a barbecue expert or Esapatha Murkison and Judith Light as former 70s revolutionaries at an old age home. Uh, lots and lots of great guest stars, so many guest stars, Alan Barkin and Tim Meadows as former TV stars who do a computer, a community theater production where things go astray. 
And so each episode is really just a standalone investigation. Occasionally, Benjamin Bratt pops up and uh, he's looking for her and she escapes because that's just what the show is. The show was created technically by uh, Ryan Johnson, who people, of course, know from the Knives Out movies and from, you know, The Last Jedi and from, of course, Brick, which if you haven't seen Brick, why have you not seen Brick? Everyone should see Brick. It's a great movie. I'm just going to keep saying Brick. And he's obviously a, a mystery and mystery storytelling devotee. And you can see that here. There, there is an absolute feeling that he captures from that Columbo Rockford age of television. Personally speaking, I wanted more of Natasha Leone, who is great here and always a lot of fun. But he's made the very clear point that part of what he liked about, and this is Ryan Johnson, liked about this format and doing it on streaming was that it offered the opportunity to actually build out some of the backstories from a lot of these cases that Columbo used to solve that might have been introduced in two to three minutes or five minutes in the original Columbo. Here, you can sometimes get 18, 19, 20 minutes into an episode and Natasha Leone hasn't shown up. And... To me, that feels a little bit like a waste of Natasha Leone as a resource. On the other hand, it does give more backstory to the cases. There's no question about that. And if you're liking the plot of the episode and the guest stars of the episode, you, you don't really mind so much. And mostly, I really did. Mostly, I really enjoyed it. I just have some reservations, which some of my colleagues I know do not have. And that's okay. So I like Poker Face, and I think that people who like the genre it's paying homage to and people who like Natasha Leone will probably like it as well. And then finally, you just heard our interview with the three creators of Shrinking. Uh, you also heard my observation that the characters on Shrinking are all the same size at the end of nine episodes as they are in the first, and thus that the title is really, really misrepresentative. I continue to believe that because my initial feeling when I heard the basic premise of the show and its stars and Apple TV and all of that, my initial reaction was, is it going to turn out to be a little bit like Severance, where it's kind of half a workplace show and then half a science fiction, speculative fiction, strange, bizarre, surrealism thing. And it's not. It's, it's very definitely not. I don't know how many other people had those same thoughts. The answer could be absolutely nobody, and therefore those people could, you know, nobody else could share my slight confusion. What the show is, though, is it's a way into something that Bill Lawrence likes to do and does extremely well. And it's a way into basically allowing a bunch of funny people to hang out. And that's kind of where the show is going. And I think probably... There will be people, and it appears that there are critics who feel this way, who who are sort of uncomfortable with a lot of the trappings of the way that the show approaches therapy. And these characters make a lot of mistakes, and these characters are over-involved in each other's lives in ways that if your actual therapist were doing some of these things, I suspect lots of people would be seeking other therapists. And I, I don't think that's a an incorrect response. On the other hand, as the show progresses, it becomes more and more about the ensemble. It becomes more and more about pairing off these 
fairly appealing characters who do some really dumb things, uh, pairing them off in ways that are comedically fruitful. And that's where I found myself really enjoying the show because the show on its surface is really just a very straightforward, what I've called for years, uh, a vocational irony narrative. It's the therapist who's more messed up with his patients. It's the the doctor who can heal everybody but can't heal himself. I guess that's basically the same thing. Uh, it, it's very much a trope that television relies on, and it's a fruitful trope. I understand why. It's just not one that excites me in any particular way. Uh, but when it just becomes a group hangout show, I like it very much because I, I like the cast a ton. Uh, Jason Siegel is very appealing and does the thing that Jason Siegel does, which is be simultaneously emotionally grounded and real while also being very outsized. So he does a lot of very broad physical comedy. He does a lot of broad emotional stuff, but somehow it all seems real and grounded. And that's the thing he's done his whole career that he's great at. Um, I, you know, Jessica Williams, I think is tremendously funny and she's Fantastic been fantastic in this. Yeah. She's, she's hilarious and she's great. And I always, I always like her, uh, going back to two dope Queens and all that. I think she's just really, really funny and she gets to be funny here. And she was great in season two of love life. There you go. Uh, Harrison Ford, some people are going to treat him as if he's a revelation here, as if he wasn't in working girl and wasn't hilarious in working girl. Harrison Ford is a funny guy and always has been for heaven's sakes han solo and indiana jones are both hilarious <laughs> they're also dramatic characters but it shouldn't be funny that it shouldn't be surprising that harrison ford is funny he's just very very funny here and and if the show gets any traction at all i feel like there's a pretty reasonable chance that there's an emmy nomination for him down the road uh, Krista Miller, who who Bill Lawrence always likes to have kind of playing these mean harpies who eventually show heart in his shows. It's sort of his approach to his wife, which he's entitled to have. Um, and also, she's really funny within that context. She's great here. I actually think this is probably the most sympathetic character he's written for her in a long time. I think it's actually a really, really good character. Uh, she plays kind of the meddling next door neighbor uh, who has... You know, she's got her own issues. I think Michael Urie is extremely funny. Uh, to me, without any question, the revelation in the cast is uh, Lukita Maxwell, who plays uh, Jason Siegel's character's daughter. And Alice, yeah. And and you might recognize her from Generations. Yes. Uh, I said this on Twitter. Generation the, singular, right? Not Generations. Yes. Whatever the case was. I mean, I was I was too busy pronouncing the plus sign in it oh, no, no, to no. <laughs> to worry about whether or not there was an S. I, I, and it's just honestly, I'm just going to sidetrack and interrupt it for a second. But <laughs> that show, I still maintain that that show was I, I really loved it. it. The young cast in there, they're all going to be stars. Justice Smith has never been better. And HBO Max pulled it and you can't even watch it anywhere. It's really, 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 really stupid. I, I think that the pulling of the show is absolutely stupid. And I agree. I agree with you completely. And I think there's no question that we are going to look back at the generation cast in 10 years and be like, wow, that was a pretty amazing assortment of talent. Yeah. Uh, and HBO Max fucked it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, pardon you know, the French. 
<laughs> they'd, they'd already canceled it well before they started doing the Carnage thing. The fact that it isn't currently available is as various different members of its cast, including Chloe East, who was a scene stealer in The Fablemans, uh, etc. Bunches of people from that cast are already breaking out in other things, and people are going to be like, ooh, where do I know them from? Where could I see them do other things? Well, HBO Max had a whole show populated by people who are going are to be next be big stars. things, yeah. <laughs> uh, including... Again, uh, Lukita Maxwell, who who really is my favorite part of, of this show. And I really appreciate how well the show does in finding different interactions for her with the other different actors in which she holds her own comedically. So she holds her own comedically with, with Jason Segel. She's fantastic in her scenes with uh, Harrison Ford. I, I just think she's really great. And I think that... Uh, when you get towards the end of the first season and it's a 10 episode first season, critics have been sent nine episodes. A lot of what the show is becoming is very much like a premium cable or streaming version of Cougar town. It, it just is. It, it becomes this thing where the best scenes are five or six of these characters sitting together drinking and just being kind of funny and being silly while at the same time, there's always this therapy backdrop, this grief backdrop, et cetera. But it's really just funny people hanging out. And that's where I really like the show. And that's where I kind of hope it continues. Cause I would like to watch these characters interacting. And I'd, I'd like to watch Harrison Ford doing this thing that he's doing because it's, it's really a great role for him. And, uh, you know, just a, a fun chance, a chance for him to be, occasionally silly, but also completely grounded. It, it's much more exciting for me to see him doing this than just seeing him being gruff and stern and wearing a cowboy hat in 1923. So, you know, in terms of Harrison Ford movie roles, I mean, TV roles, this is this is a good use of Harrison Ford at this stage in his career. So uh, sort of as the as the recap I think there's a lot of valuable stuff in the 1619 project, uh, but I would tell people to watch Exterminate the Brutes on HBO, the Raul Peck documentary. It might be Exterminate All the Brutes, regardless of what it is. Exterminate Brutes, Raul Peck, HBO Max, slash HBO. It's it's better and does a lot of the same things, unfortunately. Uh, skip Wolfpack on Paramount Plus entirely. Leslie already mm, told you. Just Buffy, yeah. Just watch Buffy completely. Uh, Poker Face is is good. I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. That's plenty for me. And Shrinking, I also didn't love, but I also liked a lot. Liked the cast, liked the tone, and you you can get a sense of a lot of what the tone is from listening to our interviews with the creators. It you know it's just funny people bouncing off each other. I find that to be an appealing thing to watch for thirty five minutes. Absolutely. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with episode 200. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snooditch with two O's. Uh, let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. We enjoy the feedback. 
If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 